Hello and welcome to another podcast episode. I'm joined today by Brian New. Brian, would you like to tell people a bit about yourself? Yeah, afternoon, Mark. Thank you. Um, okay, so my name is Brian New. Um, I'm 57 years old. Um, I am a project manager by day, but I am a endurance coach sort of uh, in my spare time and have been been an endurance coach for about 20 years. I got into coaching as a result of wanting to improve myself from an endurance and athletic perspective. Um, went on a British triathlon training course, qualified, and went through through the ranks of all the different coaching qualifications, um, running running qualifications. I'm also NLP qualified, um, and also recently um, attended a public speaking course as well, and recently gave my first performance um, about dealing with trauma and how to turn it into a positive. Um, so for the last 20 years, I've been coaching, I ran a triathlon club at David Lloyd in Warrington for 16 years, coached numerous athletes through Ironman races, ultra endurance races, and still compete myself. Last couple of years, not so much because a couple of knee injuries and my mum was diagnosed with dementia and my mum was... Um, she was sectioned and then she was taken into a home and in hospital and so she passed away about 12 months ago so um, the last couple of years I haven't been very productive with regard to my own personal um, sort of endurance activities but obviously still coaching and also um, presently undertaking a life coaching qualification as well and basically, you know, my, my ethos is that I believe everybody has the ability to overcome any obstacle that is presented in their life and turn it into a positive. And I think we just need to find the energy and the enthusiasm to allow us to to go on and, and deliver whatever it is that we want, whether it's, a, you know, running a marathon, doing a triathlon, you know, um, finding you know, finding someone for a relationship or whatever, obstacles can present themselves in all sorts of different ways. I think it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, my job as an endurance coach and hopefully as a life coach is to help people identify those obstacles and then be able to plan to overcome and, 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 and feel positive as a result. So thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so... <clears throat> On the uh, speech you recently gave, you spoke a bit about your experiences in childhood. Can you tell people a bit about that? Yeah, I can. So as I say, I'm 57 now. Um, so when I was when I was I was an altar boy when I was a, a child. Um, you know, I was I was a, I went to a Catholic primary school linked to a church. So um, you know you. It, you felt quite lucky to be picked to be an altar boy, um, but in my case, that wasn't necessarily the uh, the uh, the right the right outcome at the end because between the age of eleven and fourteen, I was abused by by the priest, um, and it was something that really affected me at the time. And as a result of that, so from the age of fourteen, eleven, fourteen, so from fifteen, sixteen. Um, I went into a dark place, the Brian before 
at that time was a, a sort of happy, you know, hyperactive kid, very active, and come from a you know reasonably big family. I had two older sisters, a younger brother, mum and dad. You know, we used to have big family holidays, going down to Cornwall, going to Anglesey, and so on and so forth. And then between the age of eleven and fourteen, obviously, uh, you know, this was happening to me. Um, I, 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 you know, when I look back, I feel like I was, um, I was probably picked out a little bit because I was an, seen as an easy target because I was a, you know, blonde, national health wearing, specky four-eyed kid, um, you know, and that was the that was the the sort of um, I suppose I probably looked like. You know, or not a weak kid, but someone who was easy prey. Uh, and so, between the age of eleven and fourteen, this this went on. And then, when, once I got to sort of fourteen, fifteen, um, I realised what was happening was wrong, and didn't have the confidence at the time. This is in the early seventies. Didn't have the confidence to tell anybody. And so, my way of dealing with that was to rebel a little bit. And so I stopped going to church. I used to tell my dad I was going to church. Uh, but what I'd do is I'd go with a couple of friends to the park and play football. And then I'd go home and my dad would say, did you go to church? And I'd say, yes. And then he'd ask me, you know, what the sermon was about or what some, you know, something. And I'd go, oh, uh, and so he found, he found out that way. So, of course, my mum and dad were really disappointed because here we are, a Catholic family, sons and altar boy, and all of a sudden, at sort of 14, 15, I'm, I'm rebelling and, you know, my dad wasn't happy and, you know, my pocket money stopped a lot and so on and so forth. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell them at the time. Uh, and then by the time I got to sort of 17, 18, you know, I'd grown my hair long, was a real sort of rebel. I did well in my O-levels, but then by the time I did my A-levels, I hardly went to school, pretty much dropped out of school. Um, had a lot to deal with emotionally, internally. Um, and and really, I think, you know, again, when I look back, sort of analysing it, probably I had a bit of a dislike or even a, um, a pardon my French, a fuck you attitude to authority. And um, that whole idea of being told what to do, that whole idea, I suppose, because of what had happened to me with a priest, I felt at school that when I was being told what to do, it was a, it sort of really rankled with me. And so, um, you know, I did well in my O levels, hardly went in for my A levels, failed miserably with my A levels, and then managed to find myself on a on a paid at the time. It was a bit like a YTS type uh, course, you training scheme in IT. Uh, unfortunately, that then allowed me to get some IT training, which allowed me then later on, you know, to get jobs, which is what I still do now, project management. But as I say, 17, 18, 19, you know, long hair, started mixing with the wrong people, started drinking, you know, what used to go and watch a lot of bands and started drinking quite a lot. And, and my way of sort of switching off and, and, Forgetting about what had happened to me was 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 probably moving into into you know, taking drugs and so on and so forth. So I used to spend most of my week at college initially doing my IT training and then working, um, and most sort of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'd be going out with friends and drinking and 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 smoking a lot of weed and and so on and so forth and and basically just. I suppose burying myself in a bit of oblivion to forget 
and, and, and leave all that behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like that probably until, until sort of my mid to late twenties when a couple of things happened really, I suppose. Um, I, I had a friend who, who his girlfriend found him dead in bed one day. He'd taken drugs. He'd taken, he, he was on, you know, harder drugs. He was on, he'd taken an overdose. His girlfriend woke up, found him dead in bed. He was a good friend of mine, a good friend from school, um, was in a car accident and was killed. And then probably to really sort of put the, the sort of final, oh shit, but what can happen in, in, in it for me was a friend of mine committed suicide. And I suppose I woke up one day and thought, you know what, this isn't going to end well if I carry on the way I am. Um, and so, so at that point, I decided to 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 sort of reevaluate my my life or reevaluate the way I was dealing with my past. But obviously, even then, didn't have the confidence or the um, the, the the sort of uh, you know the the the, the I would say I wasn't brave enough, but when I look back, obviously now I know it's not about bravery, it's a, it's circumstance. You know, people, since I've come out about telling people about what happened to me, people say, oh, why didn't you tell people then? Why didn't you tell people then? But we're all different. And the circumstances for anybody at the time are their own personal circumstance. And I think that society then was completely different than it is now. You know, we are a lot more open now, you know, so we've got the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse, sexual abuse. We've had all of, all the inquiry into football coaches and so on and so forth. But in those days, it was, a, you know, it was a case, you know, my thinking was who believed there, it was a priest, who believed it happened to me, you know, and that sort of thing. So, so it wasn't really until my sort of mid-twenties, as I say, that I actually started to, to look for another direction. Um, in how to deal with it. And then when I was about 27, the priest actually passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big, big thing for me because all of a sudden, without without realising it, subconsciously, once I realised that he passed away, I don't know whether or not there was a you know an under, undercurrent in my mind of he's passed away. Actually, he can't he can't touch me now. The fact that he you know. The fact that I was no longer an old boy, no longer going to church and so on for all those years, I, I, you know, he couldn't have touched me then. But but I suppose I got to a point where I felt, you know what, I, I, my anger, I had this sort of internal feeling of anger that I was carrying around for a long time. You know, people, I wasn't an angry person. It was just an internal sort of um, like a ball of anger in, inside of me, you know, so um I was really anti the church, as I say, quite anti authority, establishment, that sort of thing, you know. Um, and I was a bit of a black sheep of the family to my to my family and to other people through my sort of early twenties. Um, so, but the same year he died, so about when I was about twenty seven, I also met a girl um, who's now my wife, and she basically. I suppose, you know, I call her my guardian angel, Alison. She she saved me in a way because she gave me the the room, the space, the confidence to allow me to be myself. Uh, and so so on an individual, personal level, I had that weight of anger 
had gone because he died. I had someone who was there who wanted to listen. And I also had found that I couldn't carry on the way I was dealing with it with anger and drink and drugs and ignoring it. So what I did was I turned my my energies to actually being active, be more active and so on and so forth. So. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so uh, I don't, I don't want to like tell me uh, if you don't want to answer some of these questions, but uh, I've been speaking to people before who've suffered similar abuse, and they said that they they were paranoid that it made them gay and it made them think that yeah, yeah that that is a that was a. So a fear, I suppose. Are you, is it a fear? I don't know. It's not a fear because it's, it's there's nothing wrong with being gay. You know, I mean, at the end of the day. But at the time, at the time, it was something that I feared for me personally because you know I wanted, I wanted to be normal. Mm-hmm. But I did, but I did feel that you know because somebody. I mean, the abuse I suffered, you know, and I, I won't go into the great detail, but it it was nowhere near as bad as the abuse that some people can suffer and mm-hmm. um, if i said it was sort of touchy-feely um you know it was that sort of abuse it was uh, but it was very much an invasion of me and an invasion of my myself an invasion of my privacy an invasion of my identity and so i suppose one of the things that happened when i was in you know my early teens was i was i, w- I did fear that i may be gay um I thought that people might have looked at me. You know, I had this sort of, um, I'm thinking, when people look at me, do they know what's happened to me? And so what you do is you adapt or change your behaviour and over-exaggerate um, some of the, what you think of the, you know, it's like, oh, me, I'm not gay. So therefore I'll over-exaggerate that by trying to be more manly, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, and so so I suppose, you know, I went through, you know, and I'll be really honest, um, I went through my late teens and early 20s, I went through a hell of a lot of short-term relationships just to prove myself. You know, I, I, I probably wasn't a nice guy to a lot of, lot of girls out there because of the fact that, for me, what I was getting out of it was a proving myself and proving myself to others without committing because, to me, it was a case of um, I wanted to be seen as a guy who was very able to be seen as, you know, someone who was in, was uh, the other sex to me, so as interesting and 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 so on. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it probably ruined. I had a quite a quite a good relationship with a girl when I was nineteen, twenty. And we were together for a couple of years. She was a little bit older than me. And when I look back, if circumstances had been different, you know, we may we may have ended up staying together. Um, but but I wasn't very good to her. Um, I wasn't a warm, affectionate sort of guy. Um, and I think a lot of that is because my my whole way of dealing with with what had happened, and you know, as well as this sort of dissociation, a lot of it was by putting up a wall of emotion. So not not wanting to get attached or not not maybe not being able to get attached. And so 
So I went through my my early 20s, probably with a little bit of a fear of that and fear that people might think it, people might suspect it, you know. And, 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 and so um, now, obviously, I'm quite open to sharing my story. I'm quite open to the fact that things that happened to me and so on and so forth. And my advice to anybody, um, you know, in that circumstance, obviously is, well, number one is obviously share the story, you know, find help, find support. But if you don't feel able to at, at this point in your life, don't beat yourself up about it because it's not your fault. For years, I felt like I must have done something. Like I said, about being an easy target and so on. You know, I look back and thought, you know, did I make myself... Um, a target and, and when I look back no it's not my fault it's the person it's the abuser's fault it's their problem and um, they obviously leave you with problems in your life but actually it, nobody chooses to be abused nobody chooses to be an alcoholic nobody chooses to be a drug addict you know it's something that quite often it's just that slippery slide and before you know it it's happened and um, so so yeah I, I had emotional you know, and I still have a emotional baggage to deal with because there are things that happen that trigger memories and trigger feelings and emotions and so on and so forth. But but yeah, that was you know was a hard time. Mm-hmm. So then you started running. To yeah, how did how did that help you? Yeah, so so when I was at school, I was always. Um, always fit and healthy. He was in the cross country team. Um, I played rugby. Um, I went to school um, where we, you know we, we had a rugby union team. I played rugby. I'm from Witness originally, so I played rugby league for Witness Tigers on a, a Sunday. I played rugby union for the school on a Saturday. Um, I did cross country for the school and so on. And I did, you know, I did that right up till I left school. Um, and so when I was sort of 70, 80, as I say, I suppose I dropped all that because of the fact that I started to get into bad habits and so on and so forth. And again, that was something that disappointed my dad. It was something that disappointed my family. It was something that they couldn't understand. Um, and so, again, between the ages of, you know, 17, 18 through to my, my sort of mid to late 20s, I didn't really do much. I also had a, a, a bad knee injury. I fell on some glass when I was about 17 which also affected me from a from a a sporting perspective but I had a couple of operations and and you know it was okay but it was never 100% right but that was probably because I had the operations and was told to do physio and so on and so forth and because I wasn't really active at the time I, I didn't bother listening I just you know just got on had the operation and that was it um but yeah I went so when I was a when I was again, when I was in my mid twenties, um, I always loved sport. I always loved watching it. I had a big, uh, big love of marathon running. Um, and in 1985, I saw uh, I was passing a news agent and I saw an article about a runner who just broken the world record in the Chicago Marathon. And his name was Steve Jones uh, from Wales. And I, I bought the magazine, read the article. And Steve was a, um, he was in the RAF. He was a technician in the RAF. He worked, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. Um, but he then went on to go, uh, so he was a Welsh cross-country runner, Welsh 10K runner, went and ran his first marathon in Chicago and broke the world record. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because he wasn't in the elites, because he wasn't one of the invited runners, um, at the dinner, they gave him a check for $50,000 because he broke the world record. And he actually offered to give it back because obviously he wasn't, uh, he hadn't been one of the elites. It wasn't in his contract. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, you know what, what a guy, because obviously he's a guy with, with some sort of morals and he's a guy who works all day and works hard. And he's the sort of guy who just went to the front and ran and ran and ran and, you know, didn't have a lot of science behind it and so on and so forth. Um, so, so that sort of brought me back to thinking, do you know what, you know, I'm, I'm looking for something to put my energy into. So I started going out running, you know, in the evenings after work and so on and so forth. And then I, I was watching World of Sport one Saturday afternoon with Dickie Davis, who you may remember. Mm-hmm. And yep. it was that, it was when they used to have 10 minute clips of sport from all around the world. And I saw this race from Hawaii called the Hawaii Ironman. And it was a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike and a marathon. Um, and I also remember seeing it on Magnum, the old uh, Magnum with his big tash, the detective program. So one of the one of the episodes of Magnum was based around the, the Hawaii Ironman. And I thought to myself, do you know what? That sounds impossible. I'm going to do that one day. And that was when I was about 25, 26. Um, And so I set myself a target, really, of just getting myself fitter Uh, and running. And because I'd had the knee operations, the doctor said to me, be a good idea to get a bike. It'll help help strengthen your knees Mm -hmm. Uh, and do a bit of swimming as well. So without sort of realising it, I was thrown into a a enforced training regime because I was swimming a little bit. I was biking a little bit and I was running a lot Yeah. and the running just took over the feeling of euphoria and freedom and being able to be me that I got from running just took over and it became addictive. Um, you know, it got to the point where I'd get in from work late and, you know, I'd think to myself, I'm knackered, you know, I've had a hard day mm-hmm. and whereas people now say to me oh you know I've had a hard day I can't get out training my way of dealing with I've had a hard day I feel quite bad was putting my running shoes on and going out for a run at 11 o'clock and I'd go and run five six seven miles and then that became 10 miles at the weekend and that 10 miles at the weekend became 20 miles at the weekend you know I got to a point where I was running 20 miles every Sunday for years you know, no good for my knees, I know, but that was the way I dealt with it. Um, and then, um, and then I suppose, uh, as I say, I met my wife um, and she encouraged me, you know, I moved to London. So when I was living in London, um, I used to go running, you know, uh, all around London and used to run into work occasionally. Um, and I used to run on the Grand Union Canal. My wife used to work um over on the Harrow Road. So sometimes I'd run on the Grand Union Canal from the Harrow Road up towards Little Venice and so on. Um, And so it just became a big, big part of my life um, and something that has has continued uh, to be a big part. You know, and I've done some big events over the years and and the, the, the feeling of satisfaction, I think for a long time, it was it was running away from my past. 
it was a way of escaping from a path. So whereas before it was the drink and the drugs, the sport, the endurance, the going out, getting fit and everything else became the, the way of dealing with it and the way of, and I would even say proving myself to people. You know, it comes back to that idea of make, wanting people to think that you're a strong person. And that was my way, you know, rightly or wrongly, I thought if I can do what other people say, or people say I can't, or what other people can't, that's going to be, you know, that'll show people that I'm, I'm achieving, you know. Um, so yeah, that was that was how I got into that. Excellent. Um, so, well, you say that you, your father, you know, used to push you to go to church and stuff. When you told him about this, did he, how did he how did he take it? So, what happened with regard to telling my family was that. Um, I got to a point where when the kids were small, when we lived in London, um, so I've met my wife. And at the time when I met my wife, um, Alison, I didn't tell her what had happened to me, but I realized that she was, you know, a very, very, you know, she's been together 25 years. It was our 25th wedding anniversary um, week before last. We've been together, so 27 years. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I met her, I realized that she was different to other people. And I also, I suppose the timing was right. I was different. Um, and she was a very caring person, um, you know, gave me space. Um, you know, there's a, there's a quote by, um, by Jim Morrison, that, you know, a true friend allows you to be yourself, gives you space to be yourself. Yeah. And I think that, that for me is, is, is what Alison did. Um, and so for the first few years, I didn't tell her, but I always felt comforted by the fact that she was there for me. Mm -hmm. And then we had our son, Ben, um, who's 28 now, um, and then our daughter, Bella. And I think when Ben was a baby, um, maybe, I think it was when Ben was probably about one, um, you know, we were doing something together one day with him. She was bathing him. I was making some food for him or something like that. And I just remember walking into the bathroom and all of a sudden, I can only think that it was this feeling of such warmth and being in such a warm, loving place. All of a sudden, I just had this really negative reaction. It made it, it, it sort of like a wave of probably not even nausea swept over me. Um, and all of a sudden, I just, I just started crying. Um, and I had a complete, you know, probably was crying for 20 minutes, just sat there on the toilet seat sobbing. And Alison asking me what was wrong. And I was saying, you know, can't tell you, can't tell you. And then when I sort of got to a point where I could talk, I basically told her what had happened. Um, and in telling her at the time, I'll be honest with you, uh, at the time I told her, obviously I told her, but within within an hour or two of telling her, I, I honestly thought, that's it, she'll leave me. For all the things you were talking about, Matt, that whole thing about, will she think I'm gay? Will she think there's something wrong with me? Will she think, you know, so, so all of a sudden I told her this release of emotion, but all of a sudden I felt quite negative about it because of the fact that, it was it was something that had opened. She was, she was the first person I'd ever told, yeah. and and I'll be honest with you, for 
for the next six months, things between us were really difficult. Um, and I kept feeling she was going to leave me. And I just think when I look back, we've talked about it since she found it really hard to deal with for a couple of reasons. Number one, probably because it just came like a shot out of the blue. Number two, that probably a feeling of, you know, uh, trust why I hadn't told her before. But also when you've just had a baby yourself and you're going through emotional, you know, she, she had the baby, she had some problems having Ben and so on. And she had to have him in hospital and stuff. So that feeling of mother, motherly love and so on and so forth, I think me offloading that onto her at the time probably caused her quite a lot of emotional turmoil and so on. So it wasn't that she wasn't occurring and stuff. I think just for the next six months, she probably didn't know how to speak to me. She didn't know how to approach subjects. She didn't know whether to talk about it or not. It was really quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Um but then eventually she was the one who suggested that I needed to go and see a counsellor, needed to get some help to try and open up the wounds and basically, you know, pull off the scabs and open up the sores and so on and so forth. So it was actually Alison who contacted, um, like there's a, um, they have a, a, a centre um, in Warrington for, um, you know, it's a family centre, so it deals with things like uh, helps kids who've lost parents are grieving and so on and so forth. But also, um, it it, it deal, helps deal with anger management and so on and so forth. So she made me an appointment, and I, you know I said, "Thanks, I'll, I'll go." You know, I'll go to. I know I need to go and speak to somebody, um, and she came with me. And obviously, I wanted her to come with me, but she offered. She said, "I, I didn't want to ask her." And she said, do you want me to come with me? So I said, yeah. So that was in about 2003 when I eventually went to get the counselling. Um, so we had a few years where, you know, I told her we knew about it, we dealt with it, but it was, things would, things would start to, um, whenever there was an item on the news about a priest being arrested or abused and so on and so forth, it caused a real couple of days for me where I was really down and really quite emotionally challenged. So, as I say, in 2003, um, Alison made this appointment and I went along and, and I got some counselling. And as a result of that, I had counselling on a weekly basis for uh, a good six to 12 months on and off, you know, six months and then, more, you know. And I did things like they arranged for me, they told, they contacted the Archdiocese um, in Liverpool. Um, I ended up, you know, there was a lot of it initially was a lot of, um, sort of um, very low level relaxed conversations about what made you know what happened take your time take your time but I ended up you know speaking to the child protection officer at the archdiocese and so on and so forth and eventually um, you know they arranged for me to go to the church where a lot of this had happened you know I, I still pictured the church in a certain way having not been in, the, in you know I'd been to the church for weddings and so on family members and so on but yeah. Um, I'd never been in the in the in the back of the church since I was sort of 15, 16. And they arranged for me to go in on my own one night, you know, they unlocked the church and let me go in on my own. Um, so I could because I still had images in my head of what had happened, and obviously it was a like a bit of a uh, being able to reconnect with you know the fact that they'd knocked the wall down they decorated it looked completely different it didn't smell the same and all that sort of thing it was like a little bit of closure for me on that respect 
but also, um, you know, so that was that. And then also I ended up getting a letter uh, of apology from the Archbishop of Liverpool. Um, They did say, you know, we'll look into it and see if there's any other cases. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I went to a meeting with the uh, Liverpool Archdiocese Child Protection um, sort of lead and group and they had a solicitor there with his Rolls Royce sat in the car park and they were quite not threatening but it was very much be careful what you say because obviously you know they they were a vested interest to look at look at look after the church and so on and so forth and I think at the time if you remember there were a lot of cases of people getting big payouts and so on and, and whatever and for me that was never and you know it isn't something that I've it's not about anything other than personal um i suppose self-reflection and closure and being able to be the person that i want to be now and so that was never any danger for them but obviously they needed to be quite guarded and it even ended up you know as a result of what happened and and my meetings and and so on they removed the name the 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 local sort of uh, scout group used a parish hall that was named after the priest they removed his name from the they removed you know pictures and and so on and so forth but uh, so while all this was happening you know and i was having the counseling and so on and so forth obviously one of the things we talked about is the fact my family didn't know so what what happened was i basically got in touch with all my family my mum and dad and my two sisters and my brother and arranged, I said, I want you all to come to my mum and dad's on Saturday afternoon. I've got something to tell you. And bear in mind that I was already married. I already had two kids. They were probably thinking, shit, what's he going to tell us? You know? Um, so I sat down with my wife by my side and basically just told them. And that was it. It was like a complete wow eye opener for them because all of a sudden everything went full circle because all of a sudden my, you know my sisters my mum my dad were all crying they're all hugging me hugging Alison saying thanks for helping support me and so on but what it did was it opened up their eyes to what had happened and why it had happened why I'd become the way I had and all of a sudden I think it was like all the dominoes or all the pieces sorry all the jigsaw pieces fell into place so all of a sudden, they could see why I'd been this way, why I'd been that way, why I'd reacted this way. And and it healed a lot of bad things that had happened over my childhood. Not things that were, you know, bad, as in they were, they were uh, you know, unrecoverable, but bad experiences, you know, with my dad shouting at me and me not being able to explain why I was doing something, why I don't, you know, why I was the way I was. And him just thinking I didn't care and um, my sisters realising that, you know, the Brian that, you know, the Brian that I tried to become now, the Brian I was when I was in my 20s that probably wasn't the caring guy, the, the guy who might have been invited to my sisters for tea and hadn't showed up because I'd had a better offer to go out and get smashed with a friend and so on and so forth. All of a sudden, they, they realised and so that, as I say, that was sort of 2000, and, well, it was 2006 when we actually sat down. Um, it was 2005 when I finished sort of my counselling properly. Um, and since then, you know, that's 14 years ago, our relationships have been completely different just because of the fact that um, 
I was open and honest, told them everything, and and you know that 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 was that. Um, the only sad note to that, of course, is that as I say, my mum died last year, and me and my mum, I don't think, ever really became fully able to talk about it because I think my mum carried a lot of guilt around because when I told her and my dad, a lot of my mum's questions were about why didn't we notice? Why couldn't we help you? Why didn't you tell us? And so on. And so for me, that was the, that's the hard part that I'll never ever be able to talk about it again with my mum, you know. So three years ago when she was diagnosed with dementia, she was right as rain one day and then the next week she, you know, she started to sort of change in the way, you know, she went, she went sort of a, uh, downhill quite quickly so so I suppose for me that's the one thing I regret that we never ever got to sit down and have a real heart to heart about things because um you know and but I, I I have to deal with that and the way I deal with it is by looking forward and being positive and thinking you can't change what's happened so um but overall yeah it was a big thing um caused a lot of um a lot of or gave a lot of answers to questions and, and, and you know, it was the best thing that I ever did probably. Um, but then that was my family, but then I didn't tell anyone else for quite a long time after that because they were the only people I, need, I felt like I needed to tell. Okay. If someone else was struggling with similar issues, what would be the first thing you would say they should do? Um, if they were struggling with similar issues, something that happened um, and not being able to tell anyone, I mean, the first thing I would say is if you can or you feel confident enough, tell somebody that cares about you um, because there's no shame. There's no guilt. You know, as you know, from a talk, Mark, you know, I, I carried that guilt and shame around for sort of a good 15 years, basically, until I decided, you know, I won't say I woke up one day, but I, I realised that I had two choices. It was either it was either being a victim, and therefore, where does that lead? You carry on down a road, and you know, and you could end up dead. You could end up, you know, uh, in a, you know, many people have ended up in bad places, and and I have every sympathy for them. But for me, it was a case of being able to say, well, you know what. I don't want to be a victim. I, I want to be seen as someone who's a survivor. Obviously, at the time, they wouldn't see me as a survivor because they didn't know what I was surviving. But I just wanted to be seen as someone who people thought was, you know, a strong person and 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 been able to achieve good things and so on. So I think for me, the the, the first piece of advice is if you've got someone who really cares about you, you really trust, tell them because in telling them. The reaction you're going to get if they really love you is the complete opposite of the one you think you'll get you know that fear of people you know so for me that's the key thing if you're in a position where you can't tell anybody at the moment you know that whatever for whatever reason that may be you have my sympathy but you can still do things about it it's your mindset it's the ability to change the way you look at what happened to you and so for me, it's that ability to say it wasn't your fault. The fact that you can say that, you know, it, it's eating away at you, it's negativity, it drags you down. You can, today, you can change that outlook and actually think it wasn't my fault. 
I owe it to myself to be positive. I owe it to myself to be good to myself. I owe it to myself, you know, whether it's health or work or whatever, you can do things to turn around the way you feel. You know, exercise, endorphins, the, the, the endorphins that exercise creates can make you feel good. Um, you know, you can all of a sudden, the, the darkness can turn into sunlight and so on. And I think for me, it's about, it, a lot of it is mindset. But, but don't get me wrong, you can't just switch it on and off. But it's about being able to start to understand what happened to you. And I think for me, a big part of it was I was able to put the person before, so the Brian that before my abuse was this happy kid. I sort of dealt with it by putting that happy kid in a box and sort of becoming someone else. And so what, I, what I've done over the last sort of 10 years, especially, I suppose, is I've tried to become that person again. So, you know, in my talk that sort of alluded to, you know, take that 10-year-old Brian out of the box and actually nurture him because that's me. It's the young me. So what I've tried to do is become the 50, 57-year-old version of the 10-year-old Brian, you know, the hyperactive, happy, quite chilled, relaxed Brian. I don't always achieve it, but you know what? That's the person I was, and that's the person that, if this hadn't hadn't have happened to me, I'd like to think I was going to become. And so, therefore, I always try and think when I'm in a really bad place. If something happens now, I think about ten year old Brian and think about, you know, even to the point where of holding his hand and pulling him through because it's like pulled through the darkness, um, you know. So so. There isn't an answer, there isn't a one sentence answer to what people should do to deal with the trauma. But I think any trauma, you know, losing a parent, my brother died in 2009 in a car accident, Howard. So we were, you know, we spent a long time because of what happened to me and me sort of not wanting to be at home and so on. So he was four years younger than me. We went through a, a period when I was sort of 17, 18, 19. He was sort of 14, 15, 16. We weren't close because he was my younger brother at home, but I was the older brother who was never at home. And so we didn't really get on that well when we were younger. Um, but then, obviously, as we got older, you know, family events and so on, you know, we got on like brothers do, but it, was, it wasn't a real loving brotherly relationship. Um, but then, obviously, I told my family what had happened, and all of a sudden, our relationship became the complete opposite. We became very close. Um, so when he was killed in a car accident in 2009, it was it was pretty earth-shattering for me because I lost probably my best friend then at the time. Um, and dealing with that was, again, the way I dealt with that was by running. Um, Howard had been involved in a race I did. I did a race called the Grand Union Canal race. I mentioned the Grand Union Canal before. Um, when I lived in London, I used to run on it. So I saw this stupid race advertised called the Grand Union Canal race. That's a 145-mile run from uh, Gas Street Basin in Birmingham along the canal to Little Venice um, in London. Uh, and you get 50 hours to do it. And I thought, oh, I can do that easy, <laughs> like you do. So in 2005, which was 
at the time, it was a probably as again part of my um, part of my therapy. You know, I, 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 when I was having the counselling and so on, I decided to set myself a target that was so far so far an outlandish that it would give me something to focus on while I was going through the counselling and so on. So I signed up for this race, the Grand Union Canal race, and I did it and I completed it. Uh, and there were 90 odd of us started the race and I came 25th of 25 finishes. So I came last out of all the finishes, but I came 25th, which was great because Dick Kern, who's the organiser of the race, actually only had 25 medals made because obviously the dropout rate, because I think the first time you did the race, about 10 years before there were only two people finished. So, so when I finished, Howard and his wife, Jane, and my sister came to the finish. So they were there egging me on at the finish when I finished at one o'clock in the morning on the Sunday morning. Um, so that was 2005. So then in 2007, I did the race again. And Howard, you were able to have someone run with you through the night for the last sort of 50 miles. And so Howard ended up, I went over on my ankle and uh, tore some ligaments in my ankle. So Howard ended up having the job of running with me for the last 20 miles, which nearly killed him. But we spent 20 miles running along, hardly saying a word to one another, hobbling more than running. But actually the, the sort of closeness, the, the mental, because he was my brother and because he knew what I'd been through and we, it was like a lot of un, unsaid things but we just knew what you know the feeling of satisfaction and reward and achievement for me he was part of that so that was 2007 so then in 2009 Howard was killed in a car accident so in 2010 I did the race again um, but this time I did it to raise money in Howard's name and I had some t-shirts made with running with H and so on because obviously Howard was his name but we all called him H um, so again, I decided to turn the negative of losing Howard into a positive by dealing with it and thinking, right, what can I do that will make me positive? Um, you know, and get take a positive out of the negativity because our whole family were affected by him dying, obviously. And he was a musician. He was very popular. He did a lot of work with a lot of famous people and so on and so forth. Um, so I did the race. Did, them, did it to raise money for Nordoff Robbins, which is a, a charity that uses musical therapy for kids. Um, and I did the race. It was probably the most emotional race I've ever done. I went to the lowest and darkest of places that you can imagine in the middle of the night, thinking I'd never finish, to the sun coming up the next morning and the sun on my back and all of a sudden thinking, Howard's with me, you know, he's going to help me get to the finish feeling quite emotional just thinking about it now in a positive way. Um, so, so again, that's the way I, the way I personally have found to try and turn that negativity into a positive and it wouldn't work for everybody, but there is something out there that everybody could use to find a way to turn that negative. Cause the negative, the negative, experience is never going to go away because it happened but that negative experience is always going to be a negative experience when it happened but you learn a lot from that negative experience if you let yourself and so for me 
that ability to bounce back, that ability to endure pain, whether it's emotional or physical, that ability to make people smile, even when they're feeling down. So when I did the race, you know, in 2010, my mum, my dad, my two sisters, my brother's wife and his daughter all came down to London to see me at the finish. And the smiles on their faces as I came running across the, 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 the finishing line with, with my son. He did the last 20 miles with me because Howard had done it. He wanted to do it with me. You know, we finished. Um, I cracked open a couple of cans, had a drink to Howard and so on and so forth. But the, in such a bad time, you know, such a bad 12 months, it was a positive, the, the training, the fundraising, and then being able to cross that finish line in his memory and, and give everyone a hug and say, this is for Howard. It lifted everyone in such a positive way. It certainly lifted me. Um, and so I just think, as I say, you know, you asked me about what, I just think it's find that thing that matters, that you're passionate about, that you can use to turn your... You know, in my in my talk, as you know, it's about don't that don't remain the darkness. You know, become the light. Um, you know, don't give up. That whole idea of, you know, the minute you give up, you've lost. Never give up. And sometimes that light at the end of the tunnel is so weak that it's barely noticeable. But there is always a light at the end of that tunnel. Excellent. So, how can people find you? Okay, so I do. I have a website, so I have. I have. They can. They can email me at uh, at Brian at BrianNew.com. So I have a website as well, BrianNew.com. Um, but I also have. So my running. Um, I have a website, EnduranceUK.com. But what I actually am doing is I'm pulling my my two websites into one. So BrianNew.com. Uh, B-R-I-A-N-N-E-W.com is my website. So there's a bit of work going on at the moment, but there's on there, there's contact details. You can get in touch with me if you want to. Um, you can send me an email at brian at briannew.com. Um, and, you know, not just for coaching. You know, this is a genuine, honest, uh, anybody who feels that they are struggling that they feel that they are in a dark place, that they don't have anybody to talk to. I am, you know, I know what it feels like and you don't know me, but anybody who just wants a 20 minute chat about how they could possibly tell someone how they could possibly frame it, you know, and you don't even have to give me personal details or anything. It is just a, if you want a little bit of advice on how to how to deal with that then feel free to 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 send me an email or if you go on my website you'll find my phone number um anybody who wants any running you know training or anything more than welcome to to go on as well do coaching as i say um or anyone who just wants to have a chat about how i can help them deal with you know overcoming obstacles barriers and either achieving something fantastic like running, running a marathon or you just want to achieve something you know you want to climb Snowden or whatever feel free um, okay excellent thank you Brian thanks Mark